Welcome to Lit Poetry, the podcast where we go on a journey of discovery, reading, analyzing, and discussing great poetry from around the world. Poetry is worth it because the reading and writing of poetry is a revolutionary act that has the potential to transform both the reader and our world. Welcome to the Lit Poetry Podcast Season 1. My name is James Laidler, Australian poet, writer and your host. In today's episode, we'll be stepping into the world of beeping life support machines, sterile operating theatres, failing organs, open wounds and second chances with the absolutely stunning poem Lady Lazarus by Australian poet Carly J. Metcalf. Partially inspired by a poem of the same name by Sylvia Plath, Carly J takes us on a harrowing journey that is certainly not for the faint of heart. The poem, like a razor-sharp scalpel, cuts deep into the soft, fleshy skin of our fragile human condition. The poet herself, who was born with cystic fibrosis, uses the poem as a vehicle to document the completely traumatising experience of undergoing a full lung transplant. Yet despite the arduous journey the poem takes the reader on, what emerges is not defeat, but a hymn of stubborn resistance, hope and beauty. This is a remarkable achievement for a poem. And thankfully, we have Carly J with us today on the podcast to discuss both the poem and her work. But before I introduce you to Carly, let's take a listen to the poem, shall we? May I present to you Lady Lazarus, read to you by the wonderful Lucy Freeman. I have done it again. One year in every ten I manage it. A sort of walking miracle of bacteria, antibiotic, and flesh. This biomedical poultice in a petri dish, spinning brindle like the wolf at my feet as we walk by the river's brim. It would get down to this, plain and simple. A regiment of women in white Rhyming lines, tapping burettes and wiping licks of blood off broken skin as I'd yell, thick-throated and venal, that they cannot do what they are about to do, but they do, and I would smell it, like a cow smells the blade of a knife in a kill yard. Dying is an art like everything else. I do it exceptionally poorly. Yeast in my blood. Dead lungs. A bloodied mass in my lap. A head full of small brutalities. The bones worry when you dig your own grave with one finger, they do. They do. It's true. They worry when you dredge up a salute to your old life under the guise of ending another. Fracturing a fall forward, your hunger becomes an exercise in mercurial discord. 
But when you've mended your chest with a bagging needle, learned to pray over a burning ark, made your weekly pilgrimage to the cemetery, the silence is tempered, and you must sit in your mercy seat and sing, sing, sing euphorically. So welcome back to the Lit Poetry Podcast and welcome to you, Carly J. I'm so pleased to finally be talking to you on the podcast. Oh, James, thank you so much for having me. It's, it's lovely to be here from a distance. <laughs> well, like I said, it's a, it's a pleasure having you on the podcast and it was a real pleasure receiving your poetry. Initially, I was in communication with you and you sent me a number of poems and um, you isolated this one in particular. I was really quite moved by it. And I thought it would really work well uh, with the sort of form of work that I do here at Lit Poetry. Yeah. And for those uh, listeners out there, if you get a chance to watch the video on YouTube, I think it's quite a powerful poem and visually it, it, it meshes together really well. And and I suppose what we're, why we're here is to really to talk about your story, Carly. And yeah, so uh, why don't we start by, I'll ask you a little bit about you know, your work as a, a poet and your inspirations and how your love of poetry developed and and perhaps how that's also connected to the health troubles that you had growing up. Yeah, I guess, well, it's all connected, I suppose. Um, I guess poetry for me, it all really started with Sylvia Plath in high school, which isn't an uncommon phenomenon for an angsty teenage girl. Uh, I found an old book of hers in this incredible bookshop the sold second-hand and really old books in Brisbane, first edition, that sort of thing. Mm. And the first poem I read of hers was Daddy. And that was like a shot through the heart. Oh. Uh, I remember having this really visceral reaction to it and having to actually sit down. Mm. Um, so on that particular day, I, I tore through Ariel. Um, mm. And then I remember reading Death and Co over and over again in maths class when I shouldn't have been. And the line that I that I kept saying was bastard, masturbating a glitter. He wants to be loved. I was just in awe. And then I think I fell into a bit of a depression because mm. I then found out that um, she had taken her own life and there weren't going to be any more Sylvia Plath poems. So that's when I started collecting all of her journals and short stories and her letters home. Uh, I read letters home, I think it was in grade 11, so I would have been about 16. Um, And it was when I was actually in hospital. Um, I had septicemia, but I was overjoyed that my parents had come up and given me this book. Mm. Um, And I thought, oh, I can die happy now. (laughs) I've got this in my hands. Mm. Uh, And I slept with it for the entire hospital stay. Um, I think that being a teenage girl, uh, I suppose, you know, she was really bombastic and Mm. even abrasive in in Mm. her language. And she was just incandescently radical for Mm. her time and still Mm. is. I think she always will be. Um, I think her her work will stand the test of time. Um, And then I guess a byproduct of reading Platt was reading Ted Hughes, and we had a bit of a prickly relationship uh, with what he had done to my beloved Sylvia. Mm. Mm. (laughs) 
Uh, but there's no denying his ability, I found, was still fine to write about nature the way he did. Mm. It was incomparable to no, like nothing I'd ever read before. And mm. it's hard to describe. Um, and I think evocative, it doesn't really begin to cover it, but he makes it really easy to feel like you're there on the fox hunt um, or mm. the rabbit hunt. And for me, that's what good writing does. Mm. It, it takes you from where you are and plants you in another realm. Mm-hmm. And I suppose these were days well and truly before the internet. So in high school, I'd trot off to the Lifeline Book Fest with a suitcase and scour the poetry section for anything I could find that I liked. And mm-hmm. I found that I, I really loved the old guard. Um, mm-hmm. Keith Wordsworth, mm-hmm. Emily Dickinson, Edgar Allan Poe, Auden, Philip Larkin. And I think... There's a bit of a scene here. Um, I seem to have this affinity for mm. poets from the United Kingdom because mm. they write so richly about nature and the old ways, and I'm a bit of a druid at <laughs> heart. Yeah, so you were really and attracted to the, the romantic tradition. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Yeah, and I think, I guess, from then, I eventually discovered Anne Sexton and Adrian Rich and eventually oh, Sharon yes, Olds. Yes. And oh, they're amazing. These, <laughs> yeah. three, these three were like a panacea yeah. for everything yeah. I was going through. Illness, becoming a woman, mm. heartbreak, death. Um, and I yeah, think well, like a lot of the people... Yeah, sorry. Oh, well, I'm just, I'm just thinking um, because we'll, we'll have um, you know, hopefully quite a few female uh, listeners to the podcast and... And a lot of young women, as they as they're moving through through life, um, certainly in my teaching, I, I found that that um, if they discover the richness that is um, female yeah. female poetry on their journey, it it can be a real explosion. That seems to be what you're you're talking about yeah. this this rawness, this traction that this that this voice yeah, that, that is so suppressed yeah. usually in society. And yeah, and it's almost shocking. I, I mm. guess like the confessional nature of you know. Sexton, Rich, and Old, and Plath. Mm. Um, I found it to be, it was both comforting and shocking, mm. um, and I love mm. that duality. Mm. And, and there are five brands of women, and they reminded me of my paternal grandmother, which I yeah, love. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It kind of wakes you up, doesn't it? Absolutely. From your, from your apathy and the rest of it. I, yeah. Yeah, I, yeah, I've seen um, a number of young women really transformed uh, by some of the writers that you mentioned, quite radically, actually. Where we left off, working about some of the female poets that you mentioned, and their, and how and they have, and yeah, and have the, how they have yeah. a really amazing capacity to impact um, uh, young minds in particular, and yeah, and onward. So, how does that correlate? So, you've, you mentioned a little bit about how that has impacted your own life, um, but it's in, in particular impacted this poem as well. And maybe, uh, maybe that's where we should perhaps turn our attention a little bit. Carly J, could you give us a little bit of context about um, where this poem came out of and how it's linked to your um, health struggles uh, and your story and that type of thing? Yeah, sure. Um, I've always 
had an affinity, I guess, with with this poem and and how Sylvia Plath wrote of her near death experience. Um, mm. Because I've had quite a few myself. I guess the, the image of her di- the imagery of her dying and then being brought forcibly back to life really speaks to me because that's, mm. I guess that's how my transplant felt because I was actually dying when I had my transplant. I had less than a week to live without it and I was totally at peace with that, totally at peace that I was going to die and then I was sort of violently um shaken back into life like I was not expecting to live that was the last thing I was expecting mm. um and and there I was and it, it was the violence of it that I think really traumatized me mm. among mm. the you know thousand other things um but it, I suppose near-death experiences um mine might be a little more medically focused whereas Platt's ended up being medicalized because of how unwell she was yeah, and her multiple yeah. suicide attempts but mm. so both poems they, they really do go in different directions but there's that same sense that they share in common about that that rising um to life from impossible places and yeah. in, in Platt's case there's almost like the feeling that she kind of wished that she hadn't been brought back in some ways, that she, she longed oh, for yes. passing away and yeah. um, that sort of thing. Yeah, and but, yeah, I absolutely, I really connect with that, which, which sounds really strange. Um, but I was at such a place where, you know, I was, I was pretty out of it on, on morphine and what have you. And mm. my doctor had actually said to me that day, I'm so sorry we haven't been able to save you. I'm sorry we haven't been able to get you lungs. Mm. And I was in such a, a, a blissed out state. I said, that's, that's okay. You've done the best you, you could, um, which, which is true. And they had done the best they could, but it just obviously wasn't meant to be. <laughs> but mm. it, then it was. And it was quite strange seeing him just hours later uh, in a waiting room. Um, and he said, this, this is really this is way out I said oh you're telling me <laughs> so I really wasn't expecting to survive for very long uh, after that um, and I, I think I suppose having a lung transplant not being able to breathe and then having all this breath afterwards I suppose I did feel like a bit of a phoenix rising out of the ashes. Mm. Um, mm. I guess the difference was that Sylvia Plath demonically ate her doctors. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that was something yes, that yes. would have appealed to me when I was a teenager. Yeah. Um, but I just wanted to hug and kiss my doctors mm. after my transplant. <laughs> yeah, so um, her poem's very much a, a feminist piece, which is um, looking yes. at, you know, uh, female oppression and... and um, but yours also looks at, I mean, what I'm reading, when I'm reading, for instance, the um, second um, stanza, this, where, where you talk about, you know, I'm a sort of walking miracle of bacteria, antibiotic, and flesh, and then there's bio, yeah. there's biomedical poultice in a Petri dish, and um, this sort of stuff, that, there's, there seems to be this real detachment, this um, objectification of you as some sort of object in, in, the, in the medical machine, almost a reduction of... Um, something going on with detachment 
And and to me, there's a real clear connection there with Lady Lazarus, the, you know, Plath's version. Um, a similar thing. So in the eyes of men, there's this objectification, this reduction. But it's it's a different experience yeah. for you. Is is that what you were sort of going for? Yeah, I was. And you know, growing up, most of my doctors were men. Mm. Um, and I think you know, I I became scared of men in white coats coming at me because. Mm. They were they were either going to hurt me or they're going to yell at me. Uh, so there was, but it was almost yeah, this, this pathological fear, mm. I suppose. Um, so that was yeah, that was that was something that was quite heightened during my childhood. Mm. Yeah, so there was a real um, regiment of these sort of uh, experiences, I imagine, all through your young days growing up. And did you have a lot of um, uh, bad episodes with your health and? close calls and that sort of thing? I had, I was in hospital a lot, maybe for half my childhood. Mm. Um, so yeah, in hospital a lot. I, in hospital more than, you know, most kids who were spending time in there. Um, and I was growing up with other CF friends and pretty much, not to be hyperbolic, but all of them were dying around me mm. um, as I was growing up. Um, it sort of really never let up until I was in my 20s. Um, and I, I think I've lost about 80, 80 friends oh um, mm. of CF. And I used to, you know, I had a totally abnormal childhood. I was helping nurse my dying friends when I was, you know, 10 and 11 years old. Like, totally abnormal, but it was... It was normal for me, um, but and it was something that I wanted to do because I I love people and I love my friends so dearly. Mm. Um, but it was very for anyone coming in with a looking glass, mm. they would probably want to put me in a bubble and observe me. Mm. Um, and that that actually happened a couple of times with mm. uh, psychiatrists wanting to. Um, diagnosed me with certain things growing up, yeah, yeah that, that weren't actually there. What sort of effect does that have on, what, what effect did that have on you in terms of, I mean, so you're basically on the precipice often looking mm. at death and not just through the possibility in your own life, but your friends, that's what you're describing, which is, it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's really hard, I think, for most people to really understand the enormity of that and the significance, but... I suppose the question is, how does that prolonged exposure to those experiences, how, how does it not crush you as an individual? Like, uh, you know what? I was a really happy kid. Um, I was I was a singer, actress, entertainer. You know, I was mm. six years old and I'd be jumping up on the kitchen table in the ward, you know, singing, life is a cabaret. I was a really happy kid. Um, and even though all of these awful things happened to me for some reason it it didn't totally uh, crush my spirit mm. I think and I, I really don't believe that uh, bad experiences make you stronger I think bad experiences can make you more mentally fucked up yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, but, and I suppose that a lot of people would see suffering and trauma as grist for the mill but I've never really seen it as mm. such 
Um, yeah, it's just been, I think it's because it's been my constant. Um, I've been born with this illness mm. and it, it's still with me 44 years later. Mm. Mm. So, a couple of other things about the poem, Car- Carly. Um, one of the things I noticed about it, so um, Plath talks about doing, you know, dying being an art and that she does it exceptionally well. And you sort of flip, yes. the, flip that on the other side and talk about doing Absolutely. it exceptionally poorly. So Yeah, I'm really bad, really bad at dying and I'm happy for it to stay like that. Mm. <laughs> I suppose it's because I've had a few really close calls, um, particularly when I was 21 and waiting for a transplant and then again when I was 31 when I had cancer. Uh, that nearly killed me as well. Mm, and that was related to the treatment that you had in the bone right. transplant too. So. Yeah, yeah. The, the anti-rejection drugs I take for transplant, which are for life, you take them mm. for life, um, they're essentially cancer-causing and it's really just the luck of the draw. Mm. Yeah, are you happy to talk a little bit about this or is it a bit Absolutely. too... Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So, Nothing's off limits with me. <laughs> okay, well, that, that, that's great. Um, yeah, so, so what... What was that experience like to, to, to go through the lung transplant and to get to the other side? And and initially, it didn't quite take, did it? You initially rejected the lungs? Was that, was that true? I did, yeah. In the first two weeks, I rejected my lungs, or my body yeah. rejected my donor lungs, and my doctors were calling hospitals all over the world trying to work out what to do. Um, and mm. in the end, they hit me with massive doses of steroids, not anabolic ones in, in my dream, uh, but <laughs> corticosteroids. Yeah. And, and yeah, that, that saved my life. Wow. Yeah. Mm. That's amazing. Because in, in the poem, it talks about um, how you, you learn to pray over a burning ark. Was that, it, it, so in my mind, and I could be completely wrong here, in the process of recovering, is that, is that line attached to that? So some sort of um, inhaler that you had to breathe in? Um, when you were recovering, or I don't know. Um, I haven't. It's funny. I haven't read Lady Lazarus, my version, uh, for quite some time. Mm. Um, I've seen. I, I like. I've seen your video version. Which, oh, can I just tell you that it was incredibly affecting. I'm not. I'm not much of a crier. I mean, it's not for me to cry. But I was <laughs> riding in my local cafe, mm. and. Had tears streaming down my cheeks. So, thank you, James. Well done. <laughs> oh, yeah. So you're out in public. Sorry about that. Um, yes, no, it's perfectly all right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No. The, so the line says. Um, so uh, I'll read it out to you. It says, uh, "Fracturing a fall forward, your hunger becomes an exercise in mercurial discord. But when you've mended your chest with a bagging needle, learned to pray over a burning ark, made your weekly pilgrimage to the cemetery." And it goes on, but yeah. So I've got this sort of vision of of you in this sort of recovery mode there, and it's interesting with poetry because you, it's always a work of interpretation. I could be completely off the mark yeah. here, but this is what I'm seeing. So I'm seeing some sort of medical intervention just to, to when you're on the other side, learning to cope with exactly what's happened to your body. Um, yeah. But I found that line, you know, learn to pray over burning ark, really fascinating, and I was wondering. So the the, the post, everything that you've gone through is it has it turned you into a a more like spiritual person? Is that a, a dimension of you 
that that sort of resonates or absolutely I had some unusual spiritual experiences as a child um, which are really unexplainable scientifically um, but they make total sense to me um, I've always been spiritual uh, and I've sort of I suppose I really cultivated that in my late 30s um, and, and still am to a point uh, but I always I mean I'm, I'm agnostic but mm. I have always and this, this sounds so simplistic I've always had faith that things will be okay and that's what I, I think that's what I had to believe I had to believe that to get me through mm. Mm. Yeah, well, I suppose yeah. the, the other option is probably m- more what Plath perhaps faced um, with a, like yeah. a very deep yeah. pe- pessimism about about the future. Um, yeah, and sp- spirituality, I suppose, presents something else um, to people. Yeah. And so, and this is connected to to the work that you do. Um, am I right to say that you do some sort of hospice work and work with people who are actually travelling this road? Um, recovery and maybe facing the possibility of dying and that sort yeah. of stuff? Um, in 2015, I did my clinical pastoral care education, which is essentially I became a chaplain um, in Brisbane's biggest metropolitan hospital. Mm. So it was three months of, it was a three month intensive, and we were absolutely thrown in the deep end. So on the first day, we were taken up to the wards and we were talking to patients or the patients who wanted to speak to us. So, and I decided to do that for a few reasons. There, when I was growing up and even as an adult, there hadn't been any chaplains or pastoral carers who've been either atheist or agnostic um, or just generally, you know, secular, non-religious and that's what I wanted to do because I love people and Mm. people are my passion so I absolutely love the work that I do or was doing um, pre-COVID I don't think I'll be able to go back Mm. for a while Um, but I mean you would think the last place I would want to be would be in a hospital but it was such a separate experience from being an inpatient to, you know, freely walking around the wards mm, and, mm. and and speaking to people. Mm. Yeah, I imagine that connection would be very powerful for people to them knowing that you had you had tread on, on a similar path to them. And that's also quite unusual too what I'm hearing from you is to be a, a chaplain who is agnostic, so and freely so and entering into that space of uncertainty um, with Mm. people there seems to be a lot of honesty in that position to me you know I I actually don't share my story with patients because these visits aren't about me it's about me being a sounding board for them you know Mm. in their worst moments Um, and sometimes that means me just listening and not saying a word and I think that's my superpower my superpower is listening mm. and I think um, in, in regards to 
being agnostic, you know, I've, I've often walked into a patient's room and I've said, hi, I'm from pastoral care. And they'll, I've been yelled at, I don't want to talk about religion. And I just counter back with, well, neither do I. And they're mm. like, oh, and that just, just it diffuses the tension. Mm. And they say, well, what are you doing here then? And then I, I tell them that I'm actually not religious and, and everyone has got a spiritual side to them, whether they like to admit it or not, you know, whether it's, mm. you know, I met a, a young guy in the spinal injuries unit who had crashed his truck and his dog was, you know, he was spiritual about his dog. Mm. You know, it's, it's the everyday, it, it's the little things. It's not these grand things, I think, that people believe spirituality to be about. Um, it's the really simple thing. Yeah. Yeah, so you're thinking it's a real, the people have these sort of grounded realities or passions that run yeah. deep in them and, and that actually connect them to things outside themselves is it an outside connection that you mm, talking absolutely but, but, yeah yeah and so you and so you listen to to people um and yeah. allow that sort of spirituality to to emerge and to yeah, nourish I, them I or? yeah i guess um i listen to them um oh, there's been a couple of really incredible i've had a couple of really a couple of really incredible encounters mm. with patients and one guy who had had a kidney transplant and was waiting for another one he was really sick and we had a conversation for about an hour and a half one day and he said i've been seeing a psychiatrist for three months and you've just done more for me than he has mm. in an hour and a half so that was really that was so lovely to hear that I know it's not about me, and it might be a selfish thing to think, but I'd actually made a little bit of a difference. Mm. Yeah, yeah, but the irony is you're saying it's actually through listening that might be mm. the key, um, which I think is a, think a really beautiful beautiful thought. And I'm wondering also if that actually, if listening also extends into your practice of poetry and how how listening might be a tool when you, when you go to write poem or a poem or, or, or you're thinking about a poem is there a connection there with 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 listening still for you and poetry absolutely I, I think I've spent so much time on my own um, as, you know as a patient um, in waiting rooms um, in, you know in hospitals for admissions and what have you so I have always thought very reflectively even as a young child mm. Uh, so I think that's something that's always been been there for me, and I I think sometimes I've got Mother Superior tattooed on my forehead because people just want they've always wanted, even as a young kid, they've always wanted to tell me their story, and I think it's because I am I'm not only hearing them, I'm I'm listening and I'm hearing them because they're two mm. totally separate things yeah. and they're not used to being hurt and so they respond to that and they they tell me everything and mm. it, it's a really it's incredibly humbling it's incredibly humbling mm. a public hospital if you want to be humbled you walk into any public hospital mm. and it's you are it is instant humility and instant mm. lesson in humility yeah 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 i think you're right there um 
but yeah, but I suppose that again, you know, is is that also the connection with poetry? I suppose that you can then refer. Yeah, and so if you're in the say yeah. say you're out in nature or something like that, it's actually Absolutely. by listening and and asking, well, what does nature got to tell me here? Exactly. Yeah, and and I've spent a lot of time doing that as well. I love spending time in nature that seems to be a panacea um, for anything I'm going through at a particular point. But I, I think getting back to the whole listening thing, um, I'm able to listen to not only other people, but I can listen to myself um, and know... Oh, it sounds a bit wanky, but know my authentic, true self. And, mm. and, and a lot of people, I suppose, only skate on the surface of themselves because they don't want to go deeper. Yeah, well, and that's I totally fascinating. Under- yeah. Mm. Yeah, yeah, and I totally understand that because there's great pain in, in going deeper. Uh, but there's also, there's also a great relief in it too. Mm. Yeah, so I know... Just earlier, you were you were very mindful to, to mention that you can't, you know, sort of um, boil down suffering to some sort of formula that you know it, it helps you grow and all this. It's kind of, in some ways, a bit cruel to to be so um, to re- to reduce things to to, the, to those sort of um, yeah. equations. Yeah. But but you are saying something connected to that here. That but what your story and your journey has given you a greater sense of who you are. Is that what, what, I, what I'm here and, and Oh, yeah. That you're more I, comfortable listen, in who you are. Yeah, I think so. I've always been very, very sure of who I am. And I don't know whether it's my personality. I was really out there mm. as a kid, like I said, you know, you know, standing on a kitchen table, singing my little heart out, not giving mm. a care in the world. Um, but something interesting that happens after my transplant is that one of my vocal cords was paralyzed during surgery. So I didn't have my voice anymore. And that was my currency, almost. Mm. So that was a huge, as much as I gained, I gained mm. my life back. But I grieved um, mm. for many years the mm. loss of my voice mm. because I was going to be a singer and an actress. So your voice even now is different from what it was when you were... Oh, yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah. My voice was this booming... It was really quite incredible. I could impersonate singers like, you know, Liza Minnelli and Aretha Franklin. Mm. It sounds pretty insane, but, yeah, I was able to do that. So to go from doing that all my life to... Yeah, it... it, um, I think that experience, the loss of my voice, made me quite a person. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's that's yeah. a, a not, fascinating not, thing. Not, mm. not less fierce, but quieter. Yeah. 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 Great. Great. So, a couple of other questions I have for you, Carly. Um, with your with your poetry, like, what what are you working on at the moment, or and how do you, how do you find the Australian poetry scene in general? Like, how active are you in that space, and um, what are your plans for the future? 
I'm not really active in the Australian poetry scene. Um, I suppose uh, the state of Australian poetry, uh, I, I just sort of see it in drips and drabs. And okay, from where I've seen it recently, it's very highly charged, and there's good and bad that comes with that. Um, I think the collective outrage that there hadn't been nearly enough diverse voices, especially mm. from our First Nations people, I think that outrage is necessary and justified. Yeah. But I'm concerned about people who feel that cutting our ties with the old guard um, is going to solve all of our shocking history with our First mm. Nations people. Like, What's been done cannot be undone, and there are incredible Indigenous poets out there, like Ellen Van Nirvan. I suppose, uh, in a way, it saddens me that in an already divided country, people are so divided over what's acceptable and what is not, mm. who is allowed to say and write certain things and who is not. And listen, I'm the last person who has any of the answers, mm. but this isn't how we make progress. Um, and, and it's not that the politics of poetry doesn't intrigue me, but my life is, I guess, walking on a razor's edge health-wise, yeah. so it's not something I invest a lot of my energy in. I mean, there is a dark underbelly of um, when it comes to Australian poetry, and yeah. no one likes to talk about the sinister side of things, um, the bullying, the tearing down, but... There just seems to be this disconnect, I guess, uh, a lack of compassion and basic mm. human decency, which people are all about publicly, but it's the underhanded nature of poets going behind other poets' backs yeah. when they don't have a full story about an issue that can be quite toxic. And well, that's right, and, and whispers spread very quickly now, and it can be... That's right. It can be brutal, and people, people can be cancelled. Um, that's right, that's right. Um, and there should and be a level where that we, that we can trust in conversation, that we can have conversation, that we can, yeah. that everyone's got a voice, everyone's got a voice. Um, that's right. And I suppose it, it just doesn't have to be like that. And I, my hope is that we can cultivate kindness instead of division. Like there's a lot to be said for mm. kindness and being in receipt of facts instead of almost being barraged with opinions and yeah, you yeah. know it gets back to that old-fashioned uh, thing you know why can't people pick up the phone and speak to someone instead of going into a spiral of speculation and yeah. it sounds cliche but life really is too short just to sit behind a computer screen and see I just struggle to understand it yeah and look that's part of the aim of this, this podcast is to get conversations happening and hope and you know the hope is that sometimes they we might be moving into some some difficult areas yeah. and that we're willing to to go there um yeah well that's that's the hope that's the hope yeah that, yeah that's right but i can also understand that you know there's a cer certain cultural happening in our society and also rightfully there's 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 a legacy of of pain and suffering and um, yeah. injustice that that needs yeah. to be addressed and there is there Absolutely. is you know and there is rage in, in some people um so it, it's it's a really tricky um area i, th I think and but but it like is. you said earlier like um with um sylvia plath's partner and um and the way he treated her and yet 
you know, his poetry, there is some some beautiful poetry of his. And so how do you reconcile yeah. the fact that, you know, we, we have this this situation in our in our in our world and i think there wouldn't be any writer or any human being that that, that, that is perfect um that hasn't got flaws but where do you draw the line and where do you cancel people yeah. um yeah. it's it's really it's really tricky isn't it um it is yeah especially right now us australia seems to be i guess uh, taking on more of what the US is doing, mm. uh, which is unfortunate but inevitable, I suppose, washing across the oceans to us. Yeah, 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 no, it is. Anyway, we'll see how that plays out. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, look, I suppose, probably um, come to a close. And I suppose I just want to ask you, um, ask all the guests that come on to the poetry um podcast the final question and and, is, and that's basically why poetry Carly J oh that's a bit of a curly one I mean it's not as if I grew up reading poetry my parents were working class folk who didn't have time to read when they were raising me and my sister and some people might be really horrified by that you know how could they not find time to read but they really had big issues on their plate like trying to keep me alive and giving my sister and I the best life that they could. I think when I found poetry, particularly Sylvia Plath in high school, it was a very visceral and unexpected thing. But when I started writing it, it, it was a way of channeling what was going on in my life. And when I think about my teenage years, which was a hotbed of suffering, dying and death, which sounds terrible, but that's, that's how it was. I'm just calling it for how it was. Um, whereas where a lot of my CF friends were dying. So reading and writing poetry was a way around and through the pain. Um, I've never met a poem that hasn't been able to meet me where I am in the lay of my life. And that's what I love about poetry. Mm. Well, that's a, that's a beautiful answer. Um, yeah, wonderful. So thank you so much for being on the podcast uh, for this episode. Thank you. Um, Thank yeah, you and so much for having me. Oh, no, it's been an absolute pleasure. Pleasure talking to you, Carly. Brilliant. Thank you so much, James. No worries. So it's time to wrap up this week's episode and say goodbye. But I'd like to leave you with a quick update. Next week is our final episode for Season 1. We've had an absolute blast, of course, bringing you these wonderful poetry-led discussions and interviews. So we won't be gone for too long. After a short break, we'll be back with Season 2, where we'll explore some more excellent poetry and talk to a host of new and interesting guests. If you've enjoyed the podcast, we'd really encourage you to hit that subscribe button. Your support is extremely important to us, and it encourages us greatly in our mission to deliver you great content. If you enjoyed the podcast today, don't forget to check out the video version of Carly's poem that is live now on our YouTube channel. We'll finish by listening one more time to the poem, this time set to a different piece of music to give it a completely different feel. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. I have done it again. One year in every ten, I manage it. 
a sort of walking miracle of bacteria, antibiotic, and flesh. This biomedical poultice in a petri dish, spinning brindle like the wolf at my feet as we walk by the river's brim. It would get down to this, plain and simple. A regiment of women in white, rhyming lines, tapping burettes and wiping licks of blood off broken skin as I'd yell, thick-throated and venal, that they cannot do what they are about to do, but they do, and I would smell it, like a cow smells the blade of a knife in a kill yard. Dying is an art like everything else. I do it exceptionally poorly. Yeast in my blood, dead lungs, a bloodied mass in my lap, a head full of small brutalities. The bones worry when you dig your own grave with one finger, they do. They do, it's true. They worry when you dredge up a salute to your old life under the guise of ending another. Fracturing a fall forward, your hunger becomes an exercise in mercurial discord. But when you've mended your chest with a bagging needle, learned to pray over a burning ark, made your weekly pilgrimage to the cemetery, the silence is tempered, and you must sit in your mercy seat and sing, sing, sing euphorically. You've been listening to the Lit Poetry Podcast, presented by James Laidler. For more podcasts, poetry videos, and other useful resources, visit our website at www.litpoetry.com. Thanks for listening.